1 Samuel chapter 18. We're actually going to cover all the way to chapter 23 today, but I'm going to show you one thread that's going to go through um, these five chapters, and the thread of friendship and the gospel. Um, and so I'm just going to read to you right now the first four verses out of 1 Samuel 18. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Well, we've been going through um, 1 Samuel, and we'll be at 2 Samuel not too long ago, but we're looking at the life of David, and today we are talking about the ultimate BFF story, David and Jonathan, okay? They were the best of friends. David had many toxic relationships in his life, am I right? Um, much of them later in life, but there was one relationship in particular that was beautiful, and it was absolutely life-giving, and that was his friendship with Jonathan. And by looking at their friendship, we're going to learn a lot about who our God is and how he has designed us to find encouragement through gospel-centered uh, friendship. I think this is a topic that actually flies under the radar a lot, uh, because the gift of a good friend can impact how you view life in a significant way. Uh, a best friend can bring uh, joy, courage, confidence, hope. A bad friend uh, can bring fear, distress, bitterness, even. A life void of a friend can bring about a lot of loneliness and anxiety. In fact, in the context of the church, I would say when I talk to someone who's a visitor, who comes to visit um, Renewal Church, and if they're coming from another church, I ask them, okay, why do you desire to find a new church? More than 50% of the time, it's because they have not found life-giving friendships where they're at. They have not found community. Um, there are stats out there that say, and I typically don't use stats, um, but there are stats out there that say if you begin attending, attending a new church then, and you don't make at least seven friends within the first year of being there, then you won't be back for a second year. And so having friends in this place is important. And that reality is just a small example of the culture. The role of real physical friendships in our lives has dwindled drastically in the last 30 years. The current state of the digital world does not naturally position us to have real and lasting friendships. Even though we have more access to each other than ever before, we are lonelier and more anxious than before. You've heard these stats before. Um, people are becoming more and more isolated, especially in a post-COVID world. A 2021 study in the American Perspective exposes the sharp decline in friendships over the last 30 years. They found that 10% of women and 15% of men report that they don't have a single friend. The percentage of women with more than 10 friends has dropped from 28% to 11%. And for men, it's from 40% to 15%. We're more and more isolated. Uh, according to another report, 61% of Americans in America feel lonely, and most of those are younger. Um, and I don't usually use stats. Typically, I just like to stick to the word. You know that. But if those stats are true, it reveals something about us as 
human beings, it reveals that we are, most of us, are missing out on one of the most important gifts that God has given us, and that is the gift of friendship. And the more we try to replace authentic friendships with other things, the more we realize that they cannot be substituted. No amount of social media, no amount of Netflix, nothing can replace a real and authentic friendships. And I'm talking about real friendships, not just a buddy that you talk about sports with or you talk about hunting, which by the way, I'm impressed that so many men are here today since hunting season started today. Um, Props to everybody except David. I'm going to call him out so he can watch this video and he can know. I told him I was going to do that Um, because he had let me know that he would be out of town. Um, But real friendship, someone who speaks the gospel to you and welcomes deep intimacy with you, where you follow Jesus together. And so here's a question to help us get started. When you look around at this group of people, do you see them as your friends? Like, does that word come to mind? These people are my friends. I know Pam's the most loving person in here. I'm talking about the rest of us. Do we see each other as friends? We are a community of friends. Church is not an event that you attend every week. And we can all acknowledge, right, that making friendships, specifically deep friendships, can be a difficult thing. It takes effort. It takes trust. It takes time. Even at a small church, it can be so easy, a small church like ours, just to slip in and slip out every single week. Becoming great friends, gospel-centered friends, it takes time and it takes effort. Now, let me warn you as we begin to walk through this text. My expectation as we move through these five chapters is that you will experience what I experienced this week. The realization that we are more like Saul than we are like Jonathan. And my first step this week was actually a lot of sorrow and grief and repentance. And my expectation, not for everyone, but for some of us in here, is that it will be the same for you. Understanding what it means to be a gospel friend For some of you today, it's going to start with repenting um, as we realize that we we tend to be more like Saul than we are like Jonathan, but the hope is that you don't stay there forever, that you move out of repentance and into grace, and you get to experience the life-giving hope that we have in our friend, Jesus. So in these scriptures, you're going to see two things. One, you're going to see why friendship is important, and two, what it looks like to be a good friend, specifically a friend that is centered on the glory of God. So let's pick it up at the first four verses. So just to kind of caveat this at the beginning, um, according to the normal succession line, who is in line to take over the throne after Saul, according to worldly historical expectations? Jonathan, right? Jonathan would be in line to take over the throne. Here's what's remarkable about the next few verses. When Jonathan strips off his robe, When he takes off his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt, that is Jonathan's way of saying to David, I acknowledge the Lord's anointing on your life. That in this moment, Jonathan is relinquishing any claim to to the throne that he has. And as soon as we walk through these chapters, you're going to notice something. You will notice that Jonathan will relinquish power to be an encourager to David, to be an encourager to God's chosen king, and his father Saul will over and over attempt to claim power over David and position himself as the enemy of David. And in doing that, we will see that one person will find joy in life 
in his obedience to the Lord. And one person will experience anger and disappointment and their rebellion against the Lord. So let me read verse one again. It says, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now I have to confess, I do not fully understand um, what this is talking about. I probably read over 50 commentaries and articles uh, talking about this. And most of them were similar, yet had slightly different, exp- uh, different explanations. But one of the things that has happened in our culture is that there are some who will point to this passage to say that David and Jonathan had a sexual relationship. Um, yeah, it's a thing. Um, so here's what that tells me as I read through all kinds of stuff uh, this week. That tells me that our culture has set an extremely low bar for friendships, especially friendships between two males. That when we encounter a male friendship that has deep intimacy and devotion and trust, the only way people can explain it is to say, well, they must be gay. You might ask, well, Colton, how do you know? How do you know their relationship wasn't sexual? So let me just go through a couple things here. First, the Bible will portray David, at least in this season of his life, as someone who is deeply passionate about God's law. And the Jewish law was very clear on a subject like homosexuality at this point. By uh, 1 Samuel, you've got Genesis 19, you've got Leviticus 18, you've got several texts that talk about uh, homosexuality and that you should not engage with sexual activity with someone of the same sex. So the writer of this book would never present David as someone who loved God and loved God's law, but had this ongoing hypocrisy. Because later on, we will see that the author of 1 and 2 Samuel holds nothing back when it comes to the shortcomings of David, right? We get all kinds of detail about that. And the Jewish law was very clear on sins like murder and adultery, which we're going to talk about. When David deviates from the law in those areas, there is judgment for him. So the notion that these passages are hinting that David and Jonathan have some kind of sexual relationship does not hold up. Why would the writers, writer hint at something like homosexuality when this book doesn't hold back when it describes things like war, adultery, uh, and murder? So to, da- to say that David and Jonathan had a sexual relationship, to me, that's a, it's a primary example of reading the Bible to match what you might hope it would say rather than seeking what it's actually saying. Listen, the other thing is there are lots and lots of examples of same-sex relationships in ancient literature, lots of them, but they never read like this. This is different. So to claim that David and Jonathan's relationship was a sexual one, I think it speaks to our inability as a culture to have genuine and deep relationships, specifically between males. I mean, okay, dudes, you and me. When you read this, how does it make you feel? Like, could you turn to someone right now and say, would you like to have your soul knit together with mine? <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable, right? Like, it's kind of like when we're talking about David, right? Hey, you have beautiful eyes, okay? Um, it's just not how we talk, right? We don't communicate um, that way. But, but what this text is talking about is that deep intimacy um, that we all are meant to have in marriage, right? This is what we're meant to have in marriage. But I think there's also a space to have this kind of relationships in same-sex relationships where we can have that kind of intimacy, vulnerability, trust, and commitment, bonds 
that could not be broken. I think that's what it's talking about here. And so verse 2, I want you to see the contrast here between Jonathan and Saul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Look at the language, right? Saul took him. Saul would not let him. See, for Saul, David is someone to control. I don't care what's best for David. I want what is best for me. And then you get the contrast again in verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then he begins to take off his robe, his royal robe, the robe that he would wear into battle that said, I'm the king's son. I'm the next in line. And he gives it to David. He isn't trying to control David. He is honoring David for who he is, and he's committing to him as the rightful king. So when we think about our friendships, here's the first thing that we learn from David, Saul, and Jonathan. Number one, a good friend commits, but a bad friend tries to control. And I've got some slides up here um, so you can follow along. A good friend commits, but a bad friend tries to control. When it is clear that David has taken Jonathan's place as heir to the throne, Jonathan does not try to control that relationship. He commits to that relationship. And you know what? It has nothing to do with David. It has everything to do with Jonathan's relationship and devotion to God. He makes a covenant to him, a covenant that says, I will serve you and love you no matter what. I will commit to you regardless of the circumstance. A covenant is a giving away of self. It can be scary. Jonathan says, I will relinquish any claim I have and I will give away myself to serve and love you. Why does Jonathan do it? Is this the action step that we should all do after the service today? Hey, bro, you want to make a covenant with me? Be my best friend forever? Is that what we should do? We see in both David and Jonathan, two men, two men who were committed to God before they were committed to each other. And it's out of their commitment to God that they commit to a friendship with one another. Relationships are not, <laughs> healthy relationships are not formed by getting what we need from someone else. Healthy relationships are formed from our commitment to the Lord. That I have everything I need in him. And so I'm free to love and I'm free to serve you. Um, you contrast that with Saul, who's not committed to God. He does not aim to bring glory to God through his relationship with David. His aim is to bring glory to himself by controlling David. Saul's posture towards David is if we're going to be in relationship, then you have to do this. Jonathan's picture is, David, wherever you go, I will go. Saul says, you stay here or else. Jonathan says, my soul goes with you. So church, let me ask you this. How many of us, maybe even without realizing it, how many of our relationships are based on what we can control or gain? How many of our relationships are based on what we can control or gain? And how many of your relationships are based on bringing glory to God by loving and encouraging someone else? I mean, think about it. Do you keep score in your friendships? If you keep doing what I need you to do, then I will give you what you need from me. But if you stop doing what I want you to do, then I'm going to pull away from you. Look, I, and I probably rewrote this like 10 times. I'm not really sure how to say this, but so many of us feel isolated and alone, not because others are making us feel that way, but because we view relationships as a place where we can have our needs fulfilled. And we try to find in other people only what can be found in God. We see relationships like Netflix. Uh, I'm sad, I'll watch a rom-com. Uh, I want to laugh, I'll watch a sitcom. I want it to, an adrenaline rush, I'll watch an action movie, right? That the only time we, when we engage with someone is when we want something. 
A toxic friendship is a friendship that tries to find in other people what can only be found in God, that when someone comes and asks you anything, right? Don't ask for my time. I'm too busy. Don't ask for my talents. I'm already using that at home and at work. Don't ask for my treasures. Have you not seen the inflation numbers? What if you aim to commit and give away yourself instead of aiming to control? Finding deep and meaningful relationships is costly. Much of the time, it requires you to give more than you gain. And so the first observation that we see from this text is that a good friend commits, a bad friend tries to control. Look at verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and so and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David starts to find success as a warrior. And then in verse seven, the people start singing David's praises and the women sang to one another and celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his 10,000s. And in the honor-shame dynamic in this culture, the slight to Saul is clear. Verse eight, Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You see Saul's jealousy begin to grow, and so does his anger and contempt. And so here's our second observation. A good friend seeks to celebrate. A bad friend seeks to compare. And these scriptures, they sing songs about David, but notice something. No one sings songs about Jonathan. There's, there's no song for Jonathan. And by the way, Jonathan was a bad, bad dude, okay? We haven't talked much about him. That dude was, he was a bad boy, all right? A few chapters earlier, he took out an entire Philistine garrison by himself. He gets no song. I don't know why, but you never see a place where Jonathan complains. You don't see any comparing from Jonathan. You don't see any complaints. From what we know, Jonathan was probably singing with the ladies, right? That's the kind of person that he was, but contrast that with Saul, who cannot stand that David is positioned above him in the song. He cannot handle it. He cannot rejoice in David's success. And we learn something important here. Comparison kills genuine friendships. Comparison kills genuine friendships. It's impossible to have a mutual life-giving relationship when you are threatened by someone else's success. Um, I remember I went to Marion Baylor for my undergrad and uh, I was in the Christian studies department. So at a Christian school, getting a Christian degree, and it was a highly competitive environment. The professors would create these situations where we would always compare each other, uh, one another to each other. It was always a comparison game. And I remember noticing my senior year that none of us were really friends outside of the classroom. I mean, we would study together all the time, but beyond that, we didn't have a deep relationship with each other. It was always a competition on who knew more, who could articulate something better or who could have the better grade. And for a department that was centered on God's word and cultivating and forming future pastors pastors and missionaries, rather than relationships being formed and cultivated around God's word and God's glory, we found ourselves constantly comparing ourselves to each other. And they, the people that I spent the most time with that knew the Lord the best, whatever, um, we weren't the closest because we were always competing. We we're always comparing to one another. We all do this to some extent, whether it's how good your kids are compared to someone else's kids, how happy your marriage is to somebody else, how talented you are versus how talented they are, how much money they have versus how much. I mean, the comparison list goes on and on. And in our flesh, mine included, we find it 
hard to find ourselves secure in the gospel where we can look at the success of someone else and go, praise God, that is amazing that God has blessed you, that God has done that in your life. I want to celebrate the growth that God has brought in you. It's so, why is it so difficult for us to do that? To celebrate the gifts that God has given other people even when we don't have them. To be content in God and not crippled and constantly by comparison. Do you, let me ask you, do we have a habit? Are we a church that has a habit of celebrating the victories and gifts that God has given other people? Think about how that would change the culture of a group of people. I mean, that's what, what the New Testament talks about all the time, to, to honor, outdo one another in honor, right? That we would feel it in our bones. I want to celebrate what God is doing in your life and how he's brought you victory. Gratitude will always fill our souls with joy, souls with joy. Bitterness and comparison will always deplete our souls of joy. First Samuel 19, go down there. First Samuel 19, verse 1. It says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, and rejoice. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Here's the third observation about friendship. A good friend stands for truth even when it's difficult. A bad friend appeases to be liked. Jonathan risks his own life here. He's contradicting his father, Saul. And now notice how Jonathan speaks here. How does he speak of David when David isn't around? He speaks well of David, even when David isn't there. It would have been so easy in this moment for Jonathan, Jonathan to deflect, right? Or to appease his dad's it would have been so easy for him to say one thing to David, but then go to Saul and say something else. I think we've all done this at some point in our lives. You talk to one person and you say one thing, but when you talk to someone else, uh, the fear of you know, having uh, an argument or them not liking you makes us change the truth a little bit to appease that moment in that conversation so that there's um, no hard feelings, right? It would have been so easy for Jonathan to seek power in both relationships, to take advantage of being the middleman and hold influence over both David and Saul, that he can go to his dad, he can say, yeah, I know, David's the worst. He can, go to, he can go to David and say, yeah, my dad's just old and ignorant, right? I can maintain power and not offend either person. I can make them both like me, even at the cost of my own honesty and honor. We're all tempted to do this, right? Yeah, we may say, and I've, I've said this before, and I'm sure many of you have said it. We may say, well, I'm just afraid of confrontation. I just, I just don't do confrontation well. That's just a symptom of the real issue. The real issue is that we like to be liked. We like to be liked by everybody. But listen, one of the greatest characteristics of a true friend are the words you use about someone else when they aren't around. This applies to your marriages as well, by the way. How do you speak about your spouse 
when you aren't around them? Or better yet, how do you speak about a friend or about a spouse even when they are around? When you're in a group of people, one of the most uncomfortable scenarios, and I've done it many times, um, we've probably all done it. One of the most uncomfortable scenarios for me is when a spouse belittles their husband or wife in front of a group of people. Why do we do that? Isn't that the dumbest thing? How many of you have done that? You can raise your hand. I've done it many times. Why do we do that? Power. We like to be liked. We like to be liked. We like to uplift our image, even if it means we put someone else's image down. But here, Jonathan speaks well of David, even when he isn't there. Contrast that with Saul, who after Jonathan defends David, uh, he agrees to not kill David, but then what does he do a few verses later? He's throwing a spear at him, right? He will say one thing to Jonathan to appease him because he wants Jonathan to like him, even though he knows that deep down in his heart, he's not telling the truth. Do, when people talk to you, do they, is there truth? Like, do, do you have an undivided conscience where what they see is what they get and what you say is true? Well, you defend the truth even when it's difficult. A good friend defends, a bad friend appeases. Go down to verse 8 in 1 Samuel 19, and there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they, could, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So they struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. I mean, I don't know how difficult your job is, but your bosses aren't throwing spears at you while you're sending an email. Just saying. So eventually, everyone chills out. Saul welcomes David back. But you can, you can see here his jealousy, his anger, man, his contempt continue to flare up. And, and Saul is going to attempt to kill David five more times over these chapters. After the fifth time, David runs away. The question is, okay, has Saul calmed down enough for David to return to the palace? So David and Jonathan devise a plan to see if it's okay for David to return. David is going to skip the monthly banquet at the palace. And when Saul asks where David is, Jonathan is going to tell Saul that David has gone back to Bethlehem to see his family. But in reality, David's not going to go back to Bethlehem. He's going to sit in a field, and he's going to wait for a word from Jonathan to say if it's safe to come back to the palace or not. And if Saul is angry when he learns that David has returned to Bethlehem, that would reveal that Saul has intent to kill David. And so here we have the moment where Saul finds out that David has gone back to Bethlehem. For Samuel 20, verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor the kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Number four, a good friend seeks to protect. A bad friend seeks to hurt for their own gain. When Saul doesn't get what he wants, he begins attacking his own son. He shames his wife. He's not interested in protecting those around him. He's prepared to hurt those around him to get 
what he wants. His selfish ambition towards David, it's damaging his relationships with his family. It's be, he's becoming more and more isolated, more and more dangerous. Instead of protecting those closest to him, he is prepared to hurt them in order to serve his own interests. I wonder how many of us have considered the selfish ambitions that we have and how that affects those around us. Like when you look around in your life, are there fewer and fewer people that you trust? Do you have a questioning soul? I think there's, there's, there's some honor in that and it's good to have some perspective. But when you look around and there's a problem with everybody else, that's an issue, right? How many of us, when we, when we sin, we begin to put the blame on others rather than fully taking ownership and repentance of that sin? We begin to blame those around us. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done this. Saul here, man, he is, he is, he is intent on hurting those around him to continue his selfish ambitions. And I think so many of us, if we just took a second and we just asked God to grant us a repentant soul, how much healthier would our hearts be, would our own souls be, how much healthier would our relationships be? The, the temptation to blame others is a crushing weight. I remember a few years ago um, when Katie and I and many of you walked with us through this, uh, we ran into a difficult time in our marriage. And the temptation to blame everyone else, man, that, it, almost, it almost destroyed me, just being honest. But it was through the love and counsel of some sweet friends, some kind friends, and an awesome counselor that helped me work through what to take ownership of, what I needed to repent of and be accountable to, but also what to let go of in that situation. That in many strained relationships, there is more than likely things that you need to take ownership of, you need to repent of, but there is also more than likely things that you need to let go of, that you have no control over, that you need to just release to the Lord and godly friends who will seek to honor God more than they desire to please you is an unbelievable gift from the Lord because they will tell you the truth, not to hurt you, but to lead you to rest and comfort in the gospel. A good friend will always seek to protect you. A bad friend will always seek to hurt for their own gain. Go down to chapter 20, verse 41. Um, David and Jonathan put this scheme together uh, where he's hiding in a field and a servant boy goes ahead of them and Jonathan shoots some arrows and they've got this lingo where it's like, okay, um, if I say this to the boy who's picking up the arrows and you're safe, if I say this to the boy, then you're not safe and David's not safe. So it says, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another. It was totally normal in this culture. If you go to the Middle East or if you go to uh, India today, Brazil, you'll see men just walking down the street holding hands. They're just friends. Totally normal. It's a cultural thing. Um, it says, David weeping the most. They wept with one another. David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Fifth observation, a good friend freely gives affection. A bad friend withholds affection in order to gain. I love the freedom that David and Jonathan display here in showing affection. They don't try to play it cool and just give each other a bro fist bump. Uh, they have freedom with one another. 
to express how important the other person is. At the end of our lives, I don't think we're going to regret showing affection and love indeed to those that we love. I think at the end of our lives, we'll regret that we didn't show enough affection to those that didn't know how much we cared for them. So the question is, do you show affection to the people that you love? I mean, do you do it? Do you show affection? Do you tell them that you love them? Um, Do you share scripture verses with them? Do you give them God's word instead of your own opinion? Do you pray with them? If not, why? Like, ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I tell them how much I care about them? Why wouldn't I share a verse with them? Why wouldn't I encourage them? Why wouldn't I just pour myself out for them? We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid that they won't reciprocate. So what? You have what you need in Christ. You are free to show affection however God leads you to. Who can you show affection in this life? Jesus loved us when we did not love him. And he gave his life for us. So it makes no sense, honestly. It makes no sense for the believer who has received the love of Jesus, who knows the love of Jesus, who is secure in the love of Jesus, who knows more than anybody else what it means to be loved. It makes no sense for that person to then withhold affection, right? It makes no sense. You have been loved by Christ when he, you did not love him. Why would you then withhold that from somebody else? I pray that you would find the peace, that we would all find the peace to love one another with affection. And then in our final scene, verse Samuel 23, 16, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. I love that verse. Strengthened his hand in God. A good friend strengthens your faith in God. A bad friend cripples your faith in God. David's on the run here. He's, he's fighting for his faith. If you read the Psalms uh, during this time, you can hear the pain and the struggle. You ever wonder why the Psalms talk about uh, enemies so much? It's because David was constantly surrounded by enemies. Everyone was trying to kill him everywhere he turned. But Jonathan, in this moment, he does not come to hurt David. He does not come to control him or abuse him. He comes to strengthen. What mattered to Jonathan was that David's faith in the Lord was strong. The imagery here is that Jonathan is strengthening David's hand in God. The imagery is that David is holding on to God and his hand is slipping away. He's about to let go, but Jonathan comes along and grabs David's hand to secure his faith in the Lord. Isn't that imagery beautiful? He's slipping away and David says, no, 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 no. Let me strengthen your faith in God. Man, I pray that we would all experience the sweet gift of a friend whose aim is just to strengthen our grip to the Lord. I remember, um, when I was 21, my dad took his own life. Most of you know that about me. Uh, he took his own life, and it was a three-hour drive to go back to Quarrel from Temple. Quarrel, home of the fighting gobblers. Um, and, I, you know, obviously I was distraught. And I had a friend who every 15 minutes would text me, God is with you. I was driving, so I don't know if it was the safest thing. Um, <laughs> but he would text me every 15 minutes. God is with you. And first, the first time he did it, I thought, oh, that's sweet. That's cool. And 15 minutes later, he did it again. 15 minutes later, he did it again. For three hours, my entire ride home. And I remember it seemed like every 14th minute, I would start to get this, these overwhelming emotions of sadness. You know, what am I going to do now? Uh, anger. 
why in the world would he do that? Of anxiety, what, what, am, what am I going to do with my mom? What am I going to tell my nieces and nephews? And every 15th minute, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. When I got home, um, I walked into the house and my entire family was there. And I got a phone call from the doctor in Houston that was over his care. They, they had him on life support. And um, I remember I, I got the call, told my family, hey, this is the doctor, I'm going to go answer it. So I walked out to my car and I had another friend. They didn't ask for permission. Um, they just followed me to my car. And they sat with me as I told the doctor to pull the plug. And they cried with me. And they held my hand. This was like, they prayed with me. This sweet friend. Their only aim in that moment was to strengthen my faith in God. And I've had situations, I'm sure you've had many situations, time, and I pray that you have, time and time again, of someone who's their only goal, their goal isn't to take from you, their goal is just to grab your hand and say, hold on to the Lord. Hold on to the Lord. Don't give up. Have faith in him. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. Your friends don't always need your opinions. They need you to grab their hand and say, look to Jesus. Look to the gospel. So I, let me ask you, as you look around this room, as you looked in your home group this week, whose faith needs to be strengthened in God? Who can you do that with? It's such a joyful thing to just come alongside with, with no ambition, no selfish ambition, with nothing to try to gain and just say, let me speak the gospel to you. <laughs> let me remind you. And how many of you, you have someone like that in your life, but you've never expressed affection for the gratitude that you have that they do that with you? I pray that we would all, we would be a faith family that says, let me strengthen your hand in God. Let me take that burden. Three final things I want to mention before we close. First, I want us to notice, notice the reason for the fall of King Saul. The dude is absolutely paranoid and he's, if you read through this, I didn't, I skipped so much. He's, he's literally lost his mind. And I, and I do want to be careful because there are many that believe Saul was suffering from some sort of mental illness here. Um, so I don't want to misdiagnose him in, in my ignorance. But one thing that is clear from the text is that Saul's mental state in these chapters has a spiritual root. Saul has rejected God and thus has been rejected by God. God was no longer his protector. And all the weight of the power that he had he had to carry on himself and it crushed him. Be very careful how you carry the weight of leadership. Whether that's with your children, with your friends at work, in the church, wherever. wherever. If you attempt on your own, eventually that weight will crush you. And as Saul becomes more and more disconnected from God, you begin to see those small insecurities that we saw in chapter uh, 8 and 10 and 12. Those small insecurities that he already had when he was blessed by God, they start to grow his concern for his own pride and power, it consumes him. Being outside of the will of God makes him jealous. Everyone's a threat. David's a threat. Jonathan's a threat. There's no security in the Lord, so he feels like the walls are closing, closing in on him. He becomes obsessed with his image. He has to be seen as successful. He has to be seen by the people in a certain way. And anyone who is more successful than, than him is a threat. Man, if that isn't a warning for us, the modern man or a woman, then I don't know what it is. Every day we can either attempt to take on the weight of our image, the weight of providing for our families and for ourselves, the weight of happiness, the weight of worldly success, 
Or we can choose to trust the Lord and find our rest and confidence in him, in his sovereignty, that we relinquish the weight and we give it to him. We all suffer from the pressure that comes with the things of this life. I mean, some of us in your experience, sleepless nights, where you're just thinking all night. Some of us, it's anxiety that rises up in our chest. For some of us, that anxiety is a booming siren and we can't think about anything else. For some of us, it's a small hum in our minds. And listen, on our own, without Christ, the weight of the pressures of life will crush us. We are all tempted each day to disconnect from the source of our rest and joy, Jesus. And in his place, attempt to chase after things that cannot, cannot give us what only the Lord can give us. But here's the thing. You are not designed to put on the weight of this life. You cannot sustain yourself. You cannot find security in yourself. And you cannot find happy, happiness yourself. To search for those things outside of God will crush you. We're incapable of bearing that weight, which is why Jesus put that weight on himself on the cross, that he put our sin and shame on himself, and he, with our sin, was crucified. Trying to play the role of God in our lives will bring us anxiety, jealousy, fear, and ultimately death. But trusting in God as our Savior, our sustainer and provider, will bring us joy in the midst of hard circumstances, confidence in our creator and hope for what is to come by the hand of a sovereign savior. Second thing I want to mention, and this is awesome. The Bible is positioning Saul and Jonathan here as two ways to respond to the king. Two ways to respond to the king. You see this play out in the New Testament and you even see these two responses today. Saul rejects David as God's anointed king um, and Jonathan embraces him. Saul rejects David as God's anointed king because to do so would mean that he would have to give up power, right? He sees David as a threat and he refuses to give up his throne for the rightful king. Jonathan joyfully submits to David as the king, even though bowing means that Jonathan would have to give up his claim to be king, even though submitting to the kingship of David would uh, put a lot of suffering in Jonathan's life. He saw David as worth the cost. He was willing to embrace suffering because he knew that David was a worthy king to follow. Jonathan is a picture of what it looks like to submit to King Jesus. While Saul gives us a picture of what it looks like to reject King Jesus. So one of the themes of this whole story is which one are you? Which one are you? Will you reject Jesus because you want to remain on the throne? You want to keep your power? You want to keep your authority? Or will you embrace Jesus? as God's chosen, anointed king? Will you reject him or will you surrender to him? The warning is clear. If you reject him, all that you will find is the crushing weight of sin. And in the end, God will reject you. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you at the end of all things. But the promise is clear as well. If you will submit to him, you will find salvation. You will find life. You will find joy. So are we like Jonathan? Are we like Saul? Lastly, it would be good to remind ourselves of the friend that we have in Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the author. He is the word. And he is our friend. So if you would stand with me, um, I'm just going to read this one text to close our time. 
And I want us to consider, that this is the text that, that Matt read earlier, but consider of the sweet, powerful, gentle, authoritative, faithful friend that we have in Jesus. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 